Father in heaven, we are eternally grateful for the things that we've witnessed today. We've witnessed the dedication of men to the service of God and his church, to make commitments of honesty in their finances, to be men of courage and of integrity at home, and to serve the church of Christ and to leave an example and a legacy of righteousness. Lord, we've witnessed young people committing their lives to Jesus boldly, coming to this service and this ceremony of baptism, not to draw attention to themselves, but to draw attention to eternal things. And on this occasion, we've also prayed for Kimberly and her son, Justin, to remember that before God even created the Sabbath, he created family. And that this day is a day for families to draw near to one another and to allow Jesus to minister to each individual member. And now, fathers, we open your word. We ask that the spirit would find a way through the foolishness of preaching to speak to every soul in need. To encourage those that have been fighting the good fight of faith. To humble the prideful. To draw attention to Jesus in such a way that each of us might be cut to the heart. And that we may draw closer to our Savior in these last days. You know that this man is but dust in your sight. And so we pray, Lord, that you would breathe upon him breath of God. And fill him with life in me. That Jesus may be seen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 5. If those of you are taking notes, our message will be organized, three different portions. The first thing we will discuss is called divine distortions. The second thing we'll discuss is the question of desire. And the last thing we will discuss is get up. The Bible says in John chapter 5 and verse 1 that after this, this is the second miracle that Jesus worked in his ministry. There was a feast of the Jews. We are not given knowledge of what feast that this was. But what we do know is that hopelessness begins our story today. The Bible says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem and that there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. Which gate was this? The sheep gate. And it was called the sheep gate because this is the gate through which they brought the lambs for offering. And right by this gate was a pool called the Pool of Bethesda. Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy. And this pool had five porches or colonnades or porticos, whatever you want to use. And that means that there were these columns that were lined up in right under there was concrete or whatever they used, and above it was a covering to protect those from just the pains of weather. The Bible goes on to say that in these, verse 3, lay a great multitude. It would have been enough to say there was a multitude. But he adds the extra adjective that there was a surprising of how many numbers of people were there that were blind, that were lame. And that were paralyzed. In these lay. They were not walking. They were not active. 
But there were a great multitude of people that were waiting for something. The Bible says this great multitude of sick people was comprised of the blind. People who had physically the ability to walk, but not the vision to see where they're going. But there were people also who had vision, but did not have the ability. They were lame. And therefore their walk would not be straight. It would not be with confidence. It would not be with energy. And then lastly, we have the paralyzed. People who can see, but can do nothing about that which they see. It's almost as if it's progressively getting worse. And this mural of misery is painted amidst the backdrop of a feast. A time where the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem was increased. A time where the nation of Israel celebrated God's divine activity in its past. They remembered what God had done at the Red Sea. They celebrated His desire to dwell amongst His people. And yet it seemed for these feeble folk that God's well of mercy had run dry. Why are these people here? Some people were in these porches because of their own sin and abuse of God's temple. Some people were there because of a bad choice of a moment. Some people were there because life just seemed to deal them a bad hand. Circumstances just didn't go their way. And still others were lying in the porches of the pool of Bethesda in despair due to the evil or irresponsibility of others. The Bible says these men were right by the sheep gate. And that means, you see, in the days of the Jews, you could not hide the blind, the lame, or the paralyzed, or the withered in nursing homes, or hospice, or hospitals. Though there were leper colonies, given by instruction of God, but also for the well-being of society because leprosy is a contagious disease. But indeed, the people who saw these lame folk, these sick people, were those who were the most religious. The people who most often frequented Jerusalem. They were the most apparent to the most religious, in fact, the priests, who were often in and out of those gates. And yet these men felt no sense of compassion. There was no prayers for these people. There was no aid. There was no saying, you know, maybe we should have a special temple service for this great multitude of impotent folk that lay upon this porch right in plain sight. But this multitude crowded around, the Bible says, what they thought was a fountain of healing. It says in verse 3 that they were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in what? First, after the stirring of the water, was made whole of whatever disease he had. You see, apparently, the only hope of cure and radical change of life for these feeble individuals was this fountain of youth or healing. A belief was noised abroad amongst the ill that when this pool of water was troubled, that it, it wasn't the movement of wind, 
It wasn't a minor tremor under the earth that caused the stirring of the water, nor the steps of the multitudes coming to celebrate the feast at Jerusalem, but that it was an angel from heaven. And whoever steps in first, not the one with the greatest need, not the one in the greatest need of mercy or kindness or the love of God, not the one who's been there the longest, but the person who was there first. It doesn't take much imagination to see the ruthless competition instituted by such a situation. You see, you can almost see the young lame girl trampled by a desperate blind man as he and perhaps hundreds of others stampede to what they believe to be the water of life. Trample down this young girl and indeed many people lost their lives in pursuit of life itself. Crushed by those who were stronger. And it is no less true today that those often most in need of mercy often deny it to others. Yet, if it is an angel that troubles this water and incites this malicious mob, is not heaven to blame? If God wants to send one angel to trouble this one pool in Jerusalem for this great multitude of impotent folk, then what does this say of the mercy and the love of God? What does this say about the fact that is God's mercy for the first? Is his mercy for the fastest? Is his mercy only for the strongest? He is poor and limited in mercy. He does not have enough for each and every diseased soul. And therefore, individuals walk away with a divine distortion. That surely a divine distortion has emerged in this circumstance. It was Mother Teresa who only three months before she received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979 said to a close confidant and friend in a letter these words, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. In Mother Teresa's mind, this woman who was moved to do so much good was plagued for 40 years of her life, all the kind deeds in Calcutta, all the things she did through orphanages and teaching schools in open air. This woman was constantly haunted by the sense that God had abandoned her and that she was able to write to another minister, a father in the church, and say, Jesus has a very special love for you. But as for me, there is nothing but silence and emptiness. It is a divine distortion. When the Bible says that like as a father pities his children, so doth the Lord pity them that fear him. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain what? Mercy. The Bible says, even though you once were estranged from God, but God, who is rich in mercy, there should have been an amen. 
You wouldn't be here if God were not rich in mercy. Your spot would have been given to the strong. The Bible says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. See, this divine distortion has emerged out of the simple fact of how do we change our human condition? How do we get out of the problems that we have? In every human soul in this room, there is a tension. You may not show it in this time. You may not show it to those who are around church, but there is a tension in every soul. There is a pull and a draw to that which is self-destructive. There is a desire and a pursuit of that which dishonors God, dishonors our own bodies, and dishonors the church of Christ. And in that tension, we know this is wrong like the Apostle Paul. I consent that this is what is good, but to perform that which is good, I do not find. And however we respond and think, what has God done to get us out of this situation can easily lead to divine distortions of who he is. But the Bible hones in on one particular case amidst this multitude. The Bible says in verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, And knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. Let me pause there for a moment. The Bible suggests in verse 14, Jesus tells the man after he heals him, he says, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you have been made whole. What are those next words? Sin no more. Suggesting that the man was in this situation because of his own sin. It was your own fault. But now he's here as a result of his own sin, his own selfishness, his own refusal to love God supremely and to love his neighbor as himself. He is sitting beside this pool of water as his only hope. And the only reason why this is significant is there was a superstition in this. And the fact that on the day of a baptism, people may think the water has some supernatural value when it does not. This water does not change people. And some people are just waiting for the stirrings of the water, but there's nothing in that water. We're simply baptizing and bringing up wet devils. Demons coming out, they say, oh yes, here's the testimony. But in reality, it is not the stirring of the water. It is not the moving, the going down with the pastor's hand over your mouth that creates the change. This is a public illustration of a change that has already taken place under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We must not be fooled and we must not trifle with the ceremonies of God. Too often churches are rushing little children into baptismal tanks. That's why we see a surge of rebaptisms. Young people are growing up hearing the gospel really preached for the first time. Truly being called to be a disciple of Jesus. Then they realize what happened to me before. What was I doing when I was 11, when I was 9, when I was 13, getting into that pool, going for a swim with the pastor? At the end of the day, when we come to this knowledge, then they realize, I want to do baptism for real this time. Not just to add numbers to the church, not just to get names on the church books, because people's names can be in our books, but not in Jesus' books. 
And that should be a question for every church board. Does your church books match Jesus's? It's nothing in the stirring of the water. Hoping in vain. I don't care how many times you're baptized. It's not in the stirring of the water. Christ, the Bible says, was talking to this man. The Bible says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. That means Jesus was talking to the man. Christ was walking through Jerusalem, albeit perhaps in meditation and prayer. And Jesus approached this man and began to learn about his situation. And the Bible says eventually it came up in the discussion that he had been there for 38 years. And Christ, looking down at this man, his heart of compassion overwhelms him. And he comes to the man and he says, at the end of verse 6, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? It seems a bit odd question, don't you think? I mean, isn't that why he's in this porch in the first place? Vigilantly watching for the stirring of the waters? As is often the case with the questions of God, it is to awaken something in the soul of the person who is questioned. It's not because Jesus doesn't know. But he wants to awaken something in this paralyzed man. And I would like to suggest to you that having failed of healing year after year, who knows how many years he tried rushing to that pool of water. Who knows how many times he crawled down to try to get there first. And time after time, year after year, having met with discouragement for almost perhaps 38 years. Surely this man was worn down and he was weary. Surely this man was without hope and without God in the world. He has probably lost his desire to be whole by now. But Christ seeks to awaken his desire once again. And he comes with what I like to call the question of desire. Maybe Jesus is coming to us and saying, do you want to be made whole? Perhaps, weary soul, you have lost a desire for wholeness. Perhaps there's someone here today that is on the verge of giving up on overcoming sin. There's people in the church that settle for just an average Christian experience. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is not mighty to save you from sin. He's just mighty to save you from the penalty. Christ can make sure you're forgiven, but he can't make sure you live a faithful life. And as a result of that, long years of indulgence and lost battles have beaten down our courage. No longer do we have the same desires as when we were first baptized. There's something about a new convert that whatever Jesus says, I will do. When you first come to the church, you don't have to have someone reason it out with you. Is it in the Bible? Okay, I will do it. It may not be easy. It may not be popular. 
and time and time again as a convert myself, having not been raised in a Christian home. You get weary of preaching to Adventists to get them to commit to what they've already committed to. And I'm trying to get people to do what is already in the church doctrine. And to say, listen, when I came into the church, I had to give up things I liked too. I had to make hard decisions. I had to lose my friends. I had to create division in my home. I had to go home and know that on Sabbath, I was by myself in the basement. Some of us have to make sure that on that day of the Sabbath, it's some, such and such as birthday party. You can't go. Not today. It's God's day. And as a result of that, we made sure that if I'm going to make this decision with so much to lose, I will make sure this is the truth. And if we're going to come in, we're going to go all the way. And this is why we say it seems like people who are converted to the church are more zealous. Because in order for them to be committed, it took sacrifice. And when you sacrifice something, you take it seriously. But for those of us who think we're born into the church, it's like no sacrifice is made. I know these things. I grew up with them. I know about the songs. I, I know the little ditties. I know the little jargon that we throw around. But when someone calls you to the call of discipleship and says, listen, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. You're through. Your life is all about Jesus from this point forward. You live in harmony with his doctrines. You do his will. You're about his business. And everything you own belongs to him. Getting off my notes. The Bible says, <laughs> do you want to be made whole? He comes to each and every soul with the question of desire. He comes to the drunkard and he comes to the depressed. Do you want to be made whole? He comes to the sexual profligate or the pornographic addict. Do you want to be made whole? He asks the abused, the anxious, the angry. Do you want to be made whole? You see, there's something in, in preparation for this, not only for individuals in this room, but for the church at large. Not only does it come to you, but it comes to us as a body of Christ. Do you want to be made whole? Perhaps we have lost the desire to ever be a church alive with evangelistic fervor and undying charity and love. Perhaps we have lost the desire to reach the entire city of Ann Arbor for Christ. Sometimes we beat up on our church so much we can kill any desire left to be what Jesus called us to be. I know the church is not what it's supposed to be. We know the people are not perfect and we tell people who are baptized all the time the things that I'm telling you you're going to find a dozen people who aren't doing them. But this is what the word of God says. Every organization has people that do not live up to its expectations. When I was in the Marine Corps, there's plenty of Marines who do not fulfill the requirements. And unfortunately, they still get the title Marine. And there's nothing you can do about that. But if we know 
then we are doubly accountable. Not only before men, but before God. Sometimes, Jesus comes to us with this question of desire, and Jesus' insight is very profound here. Why would make you think that the man's problem is that he lost his desire? And I want to read something from C.S. Lewis. He gave a sermon at St. Mary's Church in Oxford in 1942. And I just want to read his introductory remarks in his sermon. It's very profound and it speaks to our situation. This is what he says. Listen very carefully. He says, if you asked 20 good men what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. Going forward, I do not think that this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may be able to follow Jesus. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. You see, for many of us, if you didn't catch it, when Jesus comes with the question of desire, he's recognizing that the problem with us in sin is not that our desires are too strong. The law hangs upon two principles. What are those principles? Love God with? All and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basis of the law. So if we are sinning, we are loving God with less than all, or we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Fundamentally, that's the principle. Now, follow this. If the issue is to love God, a positive action, to love our neighbor, a positive action, then if we're struggling with sin, we are struggling to love. We're struggling to desire the good of God and the good of others. Our desires are too weak, not too strong. We don't desire good things enough is the point that he's making. And for too many of us, we settle into our sin. We are confirmed in our sinfulness. And we say, listen, I've been battling with this for years. And we just learn how to exist 
in a lame condition. We learn how to continue without being whole. Let me rush to my conclusion. The Bible says in verse 7 that Jesus is successful in awakening the man's desire. And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. He says, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be made whole. But then he remembers the repeated attempts of failure. He remembers how many times he tried and he didn't have what he needed to get whole. And it's funny that he says, I have no man. And there is Jesus, the man. He's not a man, amen. <laughs> He's the man. So he says, I have no man, but here's Jesus. And the Bible says in verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And what's that next word? Immediately. Not gradually. Not over time. The Bible says, immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. You see, Jesus does not come to the man and say, if you will believe, you can take up your bed and walk. He doesn't come to the man and say, listen, you try to get up and God will provide the divine power to help you get up. He just comes to the man, do you want to be made whole? Yes, I want to be made whole, but there's no man. He says, get up. He doesn't say, I'll help you up. He doesn't say, I'll grab you and help you stand up. And as I'm lifting you, your bones will receive strength. The Bible just says, Jesus just said, get up. That's it. So you're like, wait a minute, but where's the faith? Where's the divine help? Where's the power that comes from Jesus? Do I got to touch the hem of his garments? Just get up. You're like, wait a minute. Desire of Ages comments, page 203. Jesus had given him no assurance of divine help. The man might have stopped to doubt and lost his one chance of healing. But he believed Christ's word and in acting, listen to this, in acting upon his word, he received strength. I'm like, wait a minute. So through the same faith, we may receive spiritual healing. So through the same faith as this man, we may receive spiritual healing. So notice, the man's faith led him to act upon Christ's word. But I'm going somewhere. And by doing so, he received the strength to do what Jesus told him to do. This was for physical healing. Yet the Bible, I'm sorry, the spirit of prophecy pens through the same faith. We may receive spiritual healing. Desire of Ages goes on. The Savior is bending over the purchase of his blood, saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, do you want to be made whole? He bids you arise in health and peace. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will on the side of Christ, will to serve him, and in acting upon his word, I'm still quoting, you will receive strength. Whatever, what word did I say? Whatever may be the evil practice 
or the master passion which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. So today, tell me, what is your evil practice? What is your master passion that has us down? Tell me what passion masters you and Jesus will tell you, get up. Don't wait for it to feel different. We get down and we pray and say, well, to the sexual deviant, Jesus says, possess your soul in sanctification. Don't wait to feel pure. Are you understanding what I'm saying? The Bible says all we do is we act upon his word. So when we talk about get up, that's all Jesus is saying. So you read the Bible, well, a person comes, they're studying the Sabbath for the first time. Wow, God wants me to keep the seventh day holy. Every single week, I didn't know this. My schedule is all jacked up. How am I going to sort all these things out? And guess what? Here is a soul that comes in confrontation with truth, having never kept the Sabbath, and then they're like, I'm going to try to keep the Sabbath. What experience do you have? What knowledge can you bring to even keep the Sabbath day? You think you can keep an entire 24-hour period holy when the last 24 years have been unholy? And yet we expect people to obey it. How soon? Now. God says the second you hear the truth, we better follow it. And we say, look, when Jesus says rise, don't say, well, Lord, if you make me whole, I will rise. I'll get off the pornography when you change my desires. No, get up. Lord, I promise I'll break off this relationship if you take away these feelings. No, get up. Lord, you know, I'll finally change my diet once you find me some good-tasting vegan food. No, get up. Lord, I promise I'll stop being insecure if you can just give me better pictures of the love of God. The Bible says you are complete in him. Get up. To the depressed, he says, be strong and of a good courage. Get up. To the angry, Jesus says, be angry, but sin not. Get up. To the soul battling fierce temptations, Jesus says, resist the devil. Get up. You see, I don't know what we've fallen into. I don't know what muck our lives are in when we leave this place. We can look pretty on Sabbath. But the reality of the gospel, as we looked at in Sabbath school, brings us low. It lays the glory of man into the dust. There is no glory for us in preaching the gospel. All the glory is for who? For Jesus. But we don't want that. We don't want to look bad. We don't want people to know how messed up and broken our lives is. And Jesus says, okay, you're better looking whole rather than being whole. So I ask you the question again, do you want to be whole? If you want to be whole, then get up. Don't wait. It doesn't take delay. It doesn't matter if you're the first person to respond to the appeal or the last. The mercy is still there because God is rich in mercy. And as long as you get up, as long as we act on Jesus' word, the power is given. The very moment we decide on our knees in prayer, Lord, I will keep the Sabbath day. There's power right then. The moment we come, Lord, I want to live a pure life. There's power right then. And so the next time we read something, we feel challenged. 
Lord, I can't do this. Hear Jesus saying to you and to me, get up. To the church in Ann Arbor that says we're one lonely church in this city. God has given us a message and the Holy Spirit to reach this entire city. For his name. Don't ever let anyone put this church down. It is Jesus' church. And as soon as we accept the call to go make disciples of all nations, that includes the city of Ann Arbor, then get up. Go into a board meeting. We don't have the finances. Get up. Because the moment we start doing God's work, the money will come in. But we're too busy waiting for Jesus to do something first before we obey. We must obey. We must act on Jesus' word. And that very moment, power comes. I want to end with a familiar story. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating, and it's applicable. It's about a man who was at a zoo with his son. And as he was walking around, his son was appreciating the animals. And he noticed when he came to the elephant that the elephant was standing with a gait that was shorter than him. It wasn't in a very big or strong gait. And then he had on his leg a pink string. And the young boy turned to his dad. He said, Daddy, I don't understand. How come the elephant doesn't just break the pink string and run out of the zoo? He's bigger than the gate, and it's just a pink string. And his father said, well, son, when he was a baby elephant, they put a chain around his leg. And as he would try to break free, he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he couldn't break it. Then as he got bigger, became a bigger elephant, they put a bigger chain on his leg. And he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick and try to break this chain, but he couldn't break the chain. Then he got a little bigger, and they put an even bigger chain on his leg. And he would kick, and he would kick, and he would use all of his elephant power to break. And eventually he realized, I cannot break this chain. So then at that point in time, they took off the chain, and they put on a pink string. And they said, why? Because the chain is no longer on his leg. It's on his mind. And as long as he feels something on his leg... He doesn't even try. And I believe today, Jesus is calling many of us in this church to break the pink strings that the devil has put on our legs. We are not bound, Jesus says, because of a lack of power. Jesus has the power. We're not bound because we're lack, Jesus lacks willingness to heal us or to make us whole. We are bound because of our will. We've lost our desire for holiness. And in that moment, Jesus says, listen, sometimes angels are walking around our churches with members with pink strings. Wondering why they're still captive. And God tells them, the chain is not on their leg, it's on their mind. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Jesus is calling. 
He is calling that soul that is paralyzed, that is blind, that is spiritually lame. And I wonder if there's someone today that says, Lord, I hear you speaking to me this question of desire. And that this morning, Lord, you've awakened a desire in me again for that first idealism when I first gave my life to Jesus. If you want to say, Lord, I hear your voice and you have awakened that desire in me this morning, I just invite you to stand to your feet. You say, Lord, you've awakened something in my heart. You've awakened that desire. You've awakened that desire. But my second appeal is for someone who's been struggling with God's forgiveness, struggling with guilt, and to accept his forgiveness. And Jesus is saying to that soul, do not wait to feel forgiven, but believe it because Jesus has promised. Just get up. And if you want to say, Lord, I've never, you've never given your life to Jesus through baptism. And just as these young people made the commitment today to give their life to God publicly through the ceremony of baptism, you say, Lord, I want to do the same thing. I just invite you to slip out and come up front. Slip out and come. You've never given your life to Jesus through baptism. Third appeal is for someone who's been struggling with the sin for a long time. And you want to come to Jesus today and say, yes, Lord, I want to be made whole. I want to be made whole. And I want to will to do what Jesus has commanded, trusting that he will give me the strength as I act upon his word. Just slip out and come. Yes, Lord, I want to be made whole, and I don't have to wait. Jesus is saying to you, get up. Don't just be down. Get up. And too often we stay down in the muck that we put ourselves in. And yes, it is our fault. That's why it's called mercy. And God is rich in mercy. And he's saying, get up to that soul. Lord, I've been down. And yes, today I want to be made whole. Come. Just slip out and come. Yes, Lord, I want to be made whole. I want to be made whole. And I'm going to try to do what you've asked me to do, trusting that you'll give me the power. My last appeal is for that soul that is paralyzed, that is blinded or lamed by fear, insecurity, and anxiety. In doing 
what Jesus has called you to do. And you want to get up today. There's something Jesus has been calling you to do. And you've been blinded, paralyzed, or lame. Jesus is calling you to do something for him. And you've been paralyzed by fear, by blindness, anxiety. And you say, Lord, I want to get up with you. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. I'm not going to wait to feel like I'm worthy to do it. I'm not going to wait to feel forgiven. I'm not going to wait to feel like this is the right time to break off this relationship. Lord, I'm going to get up today. I'm going to do what you called me to do. I'm going to get up. And the next time that we find ourselves down, that's all we say. Hear Jesus telling us, get up. Take up your bed and walk. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.